Hey, what's happening? And welcome to Episode 9 of the GCSAA Podcast, presented in partnership with our friends at Bayer Environmental Science. I'm your host, Scott Hollister, the Editor-in-Chief of GCM Magazine, and I am glad that you've taken the time to join us for what promises to be another great edition of the podcast. If you haven't already, I would humbly encourage you to subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and rate and review the podcast on those services. It really does help the cause when you do those things, so please subscribe, rate, and review if you can. On this episode of the GCSA Podcast, we've got a pair of really interesting segments for you. First off, we're going to turn the floor over to assistant superintendents and take a peek into their world as we welcome Carol Turner and Philip Fisher to the podcast. Carol is the second assistant superintendent at Ladies Golf Club of Toronto in Canada, while Philip is the assistant superintendent at Brickyard Crossings Golf Course in Indianapolis. And both of those folks are members of GCSAA's assistant superintendent Superintendent Task Group. Uh, that group was at GCSA headquarters in Lawrence recently for some meetings. So we took that opportunity to chat with uh, those two about their careers, some of the challenges and opportunities facing assistant superintendents uh, in this market, and some of the issues that are being tackled by that GCSAA task group. Some real interesting perspective from the couple of up-and-comers in the industry that I think you're really going to enjoy. After that, we will dive into another of our partner profile conversations featuring some of the uh, technical expertise that our friends at Bear bring to the table in the golf course management industry. And in this episode, we talk with Patrick Burgess, PhD, the field development scientist with Bear and the 2018 winner of the Musser International Turfgrass Foundation Award of Excellence. We talked to Patrick about that prestigious award, his career path to his current post with Bayer, and a little bit about the technical side of Bayer's stress guard technologies that customers find in the company's line of fungicide. Of course, Bayer is the presenting partner of this podcast, so our thanks to them for their support. Anyone who has worked with Bayer uh, can confirm that they are definitely a company committed to helping customers thrive through a combination of great technical expertise like Patrick and innovative solutions like Bayer's Stress Guard fungicide products. You can learn more about Bayer and the Stress Guard product line by going to environmentalscience.bear.us slash stressguard. That's environmentalscience.bear.us slash stressguard. Without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into Episode 9 of the GCSA Podcast with my conversation with Assistant Superintendents Carol Turner and Philip Fisher. Well, welcome back. And one of the, uh, one of the fun things here uh, when you're working at GCSA in, in the headquarters building here in Lawrence, Kansas, is we get uh, visitors quite a lot. And uh, a lot of times those visitors are working superintendents, assistant superintendents, equipment managers who are here serving the uh, industry and serving the association by serving on uh, one of GCSAA's task groups, uh, committees, things of that nature. And today, we are in first part of May, we have our assistant superintendent task group in the building and... Uh, going through some meetings, planning the assistant superintendent certificate series, the next steps with that, learning a little bit about what's going on with the association. And while those folks were here in the building, we wanted to take uh, an opportunity to have a couple of assistants uh, on the podcast to kind of talk about the state of being an assistant superintendent, what it's, what it's currently like, what job prospects are, and the sorts of things um, and issues that are facing assistant superintendents. So, uh, 
I say all that about being in the building, and one of our guests is actually not in the building. We will get to that in just a minute. But um, first off, I want to uh, welcome Carol Turner to the podcast. Carol is the second assistant superintendent at Ladies Golf Club of Toronto, uh, north of the border. So, Carol, welcome. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you. And our guest on the phone line, and uh, Philip can, I guess, tell us a little bit about that, but uh, it's Philip Fisher. Philip is the assistant superintendent at Brickyard Crossing Golf Course uh, in Indianapolis, Indiana. Philip, how are you doing today? Doing good, Scott. Doing good. How about yourself? Uh, excellent. Um, and and why why did you why were you unable to? Uh, I know you've got a lot of, of of stuff coming up at the golf course that we will talk <laughs> about here in a in a little bit. But uh, uh, you were unable to unfortunately make the the trip to lovely Lawrence, Kansas, where it's like forty five degrees today. By the way, we are in full event mode here at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and being in a rush that I was yesterday leaving work, I lost my wallet and trying to get through <laughs> airport security at the last minute uh, i had some difficulties and it forced me to miss a miss a plane oh, so my goodness. that is the honest truth well well we're we're happy that you're able to join us um and uh, at least by phone and we can talk a little bit about what you've got going on uh, there. But um, I-, I wanted to start and let you guys just kind of have a chance to kind of introduce yourself, talk about a little bit about your path uh, to a career in golf course management. And Carol, I'll start with you since you're here in the room. And uh, j- how did how did you get interested in golf course management in a career in golf? And uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your path to your current position in Toronto. Um, I had kind of a random path. Um, I just fell into it as like a, I was about 20, got offered a job at a, a golf course in my hometown, worked there for a couple seasons, kind of got out of it, even though it was probably the funnest job I ever had. Um, did some landscaping, stuff like that. And then um, I just uh, kind of got sick of what I was doing. I was kind of unhappy in a job. I decided I would go back to golf for just one season to have a fun summer. And I haven't really gotten back out of it <laughs> since. Um, and that was in 2013 I got back into it. So it's been a little while that I've been back. Well, that's that's great. And that's not an uncommon story among the, the folks that I have an opportunity to uh to, to interact with. Um, and uh, so you, you talk about season, are, how, for how, how long are your seasons in the Toronto area? Um, the, the golf course is open um, from, I would say about mid-April to mid-November, um, but we've got a, a crew going year-round getting stuff done. Do you? Is there an, uh, is membership active year-round? Are there other activities at the club or just the golf? Um, not really. It just kind of falls off. They do some Christmas events and then right. it's just done. Philip, is your, you guys are open year round as long as, as long as you can uh, put a, a peg in the ground and hit a ball, you guys are, are open for play, correct? No, we are one of the fortunate golf courses. We will shut down November oh. 15th and not open up till March 15th. We're one of the few golf courses in the area. But, you know, as far as staffing a pro shop and staffing uh, the golf maintenance side of things, they just feel like it's best to close down and give the golf course a break. Wow. Wow. That's, well, I get, that's probably, as, as you're both probably aware, there are probably pluses and minuses to, uh, uh, to, to uh, to doing that, obviously, you get a little uh, mental uh, mental health break when the course is not closed. You're able to probably take care of some projects that maybe you wouldn't otherwise uh, get to, get to 
do, but I'm I'm sure there are there are equal challenges for being closed that time. Philip, talk about it. Uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, uh, your pathway into a career in golf course management. How did you uh, how did you get interested in it, and what uh, steps led you there to uh, Brickyard Crossing? Yeah, so luckily uh, I, I've been quite prepared for this question. I've been seem to be getting this question a lot lately, and I I, I tell people. That it goes back to a uh, a failed attempt at being a golf course architect, uh, having a teacher laugh at me, and then a girl that brought me into uh, to this industry. But it started off when I was about ten years old. Got trained on how to mow the backyard by my dad. Nothing like taking the mower deck, scalping down some uh, Kentucky thirty-one tall fescue to about an inch, and calling that your putting green in the backyard. I'd say by about 14, I designed about 35 different golf courses on a part or on a uh, three-acre ranch at my parents' house. Wow! Uh, then I had a brother tell me, like, "Hey, you should go into turf science," and I thought, "Wow, there's a college degree for that." So I went back to my junior year of high school. I'm giving a presentation. I did my research. I'm like, "I'm going into turf science," and not real for sure if it was my delivery or my career. But I can tell you, everybody in the room was laughing, and by the end of it, my teacher was rolling on the floor laughing. So I thought, ooh, still not sure about that, but I was like, <laughs> anyway, it sounded like a great, a great career. And then I always wanted to do it, but I didn't know where to get my start, and there was a, uh, a girl in my class, and she's like, you should go work for my dad. He works at the, the local country club, and I said, okay, you know, <laughs> that'd be great. Uh, she, she was kind of a cute girl and I thought, well, her dad will like me, then she'll like me and <laughs> life will be great. Uh, went there, uh, worked for two seasons at the local country club and I'll admit I fell in love, uh, not with the girl, but with the, <laughs> the, 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 the turf industry. He was a great early mentor in my career, uh, made me want to switch careers. And I, I transferred to Purdue university, got a, a, a turf science degree. And I've been in the uh, golf industry ever since. And I did remain friends with the girl. So we're still friends to this day. And I thank her all the time for uh, helping me get a career started in golf course. Well, that's great. That was going to be a follow-up question was how did the, uh, how did it work out with the girl? So glad that you're still friends. You got to thank her for getting you, getting you into, uh, getting you into the business. Um, this was not, this was not intentional, but as I mentioned earlier, both of you are currently working at, at really kind of unique golf facilities. Um, Carol, in your case, it's a the only private club in North America uh, for women. And uh, Philip, obviously, in your case, you're in a golf course built right next to one of America's greatest uh, sporting venues. With that, you have three holes inside the Speedway, right? Is that correct? There are there are four holes, four holes. inside of the track. Four holes. We'll let, we'll let you talk a little bit about that here in a second. But um, that was not intentional. But I thought it was super interesting, super cool, and I and I wanted to follow up on it. Um, Carol, what can you tell us? Uh, tell me a little bit more about the fact that uh, uh, this is one of the only. It's the only club in North America available for both um, or available just for women. Does that just cover a membership in the club? Yeah. So men can golf um, at. The ladies, um, there's restrictions. They can't be full members is kind of the thing. So the top tee times are booked off for women. So kind of like other golf clubs that might do for men. Right. Just uh, the, the the equation is flipped. And I read a little bit about the, the, the history. The, when did the club first open? 
um, in the early 1920s. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting story. Um, so Ada McKenzie, who founded the club, could not get tea times on weekends or any time, really. So she decided to start her own golf club, um, but they weren't selling property to women at the time. So she posed, uh, her and Stanley Thompson posed as a married couple to purchase the land wow. of the ladies. And if that went to happen, the property wouldn't be there. It'd wow. probably be something else. And Stanley Thompson was the designer yes, of the he, golf course? Yes, he, he was also the designer. Wow. So. That that's that's incredible. Now I'm I'm assuming that the works the workforce uh, at the ladies is is mixed uh, with men and women. I'm assuming. Yeah, it really depends on um, the season. Um, we are another rare not not because we're at the ladies. It just kind of worked out that way. There's um, the first assistant Amanda Friend and I are both women, but it's a mix. Like our crew can be right now. It's male dominant. Just say three years ago, it might have been female dominant. Wow. It's just who applies. Well, that's great, and and I, from from some events that took place at, at uh, the golf industry show in in February, and some of the increasing women in, in turf events, uh, there's a there's a noted noted um, growth in females in the game, especially in Canada. Yep. Is is there is there something about the water in in Canada that that's that's leading uh, more and more women to discover careers in golf course management, or or because you've built quite a uh, quite a group um, and great camaraderie up yeah. there. What what is it about Canada that's that's uh, opening uh, these doors? I am not actually sure, um, but I, I find that since we found each other, maybe we're more vocal, and you're just seeing more of us. Maybe there are more here, and they're just kind of spread out, and you're not really hearing as much from well, them. Well, and it's it's great that on this uh, task group that's visiting Lawrence today, the assistant superintendent task group, there were uh, three female assistants. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, that's three. Gr- that's yep. great, and they're out of about I think there's ten or eleven people total on, on the task group so that's that's a great representation and and what an interesting story uh philip uh procured crossings obviously <laughs> has its own it, its own unique uh, uh, story i don't know if it's super exclusive but there are very very few golf courses that are built either in con- in conjunction with or in close proximity to another very famous sporting venue um What's maybe just tell people about what Brickyard Crossing is? I can't imagine many of our listeners won't know what that is, but tell us a little bit about that and and how that challenges you and, and your team from a uh, from a maintenance standpoint. Yeah, you're right. This is a very unique golf facility. Um, it started all the way back in 1929 was when they built the first golf course out here, and we've gone through different reiterations, uh, designs, layouts. You know, nine holes inside the track, nine holes outside the track, 18 holes outside the track, nine holes in, you know, a couple of different remodels over the years. But we've always been associated with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. They hosted a PGA Tour event back in the mid, mid-60s. mid uh, They often called it the Chicken Bone Open. It was played, <laughs> it was played during the, um, the Indianapolis 500. The Indianapolis 500 hasn't always been on. Sunday Memorial Day. That wasn't until, you know, later later on in the 60s or 70s, I forget when, but they made it official the Sunday. It used to just be Memorial Day. That would change every year. So they'd play, they'd play three rounds, and then they'd have the 500 one day, and then come back the next day to finish up the golf tournament. So it was a, it was a pretty big um, event going off. In the 90s, Pete Dye came in and, and remodeled the course to what it is now. 
14 holes outside, four holes on the inside. And it, it's a very unique dynamic because, um, you know, we know who we are. What makes our golf course unique is you get a play of the hollowed grounds of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, so it, it, it's very neat. From a maintenance standpoint, you know, it seems like our golf course is just coming in the form every May. Right. So it's May 1st, you're, like, you're looking out and you're like, wow, this place, we're getting there. You know, you've been waiting all winter to get it going. And then, boom, the, the month of May hits. And in Indianapolis, the race is a huge deal for the entire town, the economy, everything. Um, you know, it's the, it's the world's largest single-day sporting event. So everything culminates with the greatest spectacle of racing, the Indianapolis 500. But leading up to it, you know, we host tons of, spon- you know, the IndyCar sponsors, IMS sponsors, the host their corporate outings on the golf course. So it, it makes for a very busy month of May. But I can tell you with all the excitement going on around here that it's very easy to come to work. And if I didn't have such a beautiful daughter and wife at home, it would be very hard to leave in the after, or afternoons and early evenings. Now, uh, just briefly, um, d- does the course close uh, a- around the-, the big events? So the Indy 500, the Brickyard, uh, NASCAR race. Do you do you close the property to play? Obviously, I would imagine on race days you mu- you must. But um, how does that work from a preparation standpoint? So it, it makes it very challenging um, for the race day, the Indianapolis 500. We will be open the Friday and Saturday before. We typically will have an afternoon concert on the, on the grounds. So we will have morning tea times till about noon. And then, you know, they want all the, they want all the rounds over by the time the concert starts. And then, um, you know, so we got to go, we got to hurry out there, get all of our course accessories back in so they don't get stolen because <laughs> our golf course is open. You can openly walk through it. You know, we're right in the middle of the track. And then we will close on race day. And, you know, they're going to have over 300,000 fans on the property, uh, maybe 80 to 120,000 just in the infield alone walking across the golf course. You know, we pull in all the, all the course accessories. It's, it's kind of a, a neat event uh, because it's my, you know, one of our days that we're closed and we, we get to uh, watch the people. It's a good people watching day and watch, watch the race. Um, you know, with that said, though, we are cleaned up and open by 11 o'clock the next morning, usually. So wow. it, it goes back to having a, a great team. I was, I was amazed in my first year here how smoothly everything went. But then if you think back, the IMS has been doing this for 103 years. They're getting ready for the 103rd running this year, the 500. So they, they know how to put on an event and we know how to get it cleaned up. So it, it's pretty neat. Yeah, that's uh, I, I as I mentioned, I, I had a chance to go to the race probably 15 years ago, and and I spent some time in advance uh, with the superintendent at that time, and uh, um, yeah, some of the stories about some of the things found on the golf course <laughs> following the the race in terms of couches and coolers, and I'm like, I'm not sure who brings a couch to a, a <laughs> auto race, but uh, people apparently think it's mu- it's a must bring item because they he said they found more than one, but uh, that's that's quite yeah. an accomplishment to get that place. It, it is it is a spectacle and for the golf course you know it, it for how many people you'll see on it and being able to freely roam across greens and fairways and whatnot it's usually a couple kids build a couple sand uh sandboxes 
you'll have a uh, a drunk person or two draw you a picture. I'm not going to digress, but they always draw the exact same picture every year. Um, we just got to make sure we get those raked out before we have golfers the next day and you know, it's back to normal around here. Yeah, yeah. Well, interesting stuff, and you both have uh, really fascinating uh, career paths and have landed at some some pretty interesting uh, places, so I appreciate you taking a little time. Let's dive in a little bit about uh, to kind of uh, into the industry and the business of golf course management and, and the role of, of assistant superintendents. And I, I put this question a little bit further down, but I'd like to maybe start off with it, and it really has to do with, um, I guess, some of your personal goals uh, in, in this business. When uh, in my early days in working in golf and working for GCSAA, um, most assistants aspired to a, a head superintendent position. They wanted they wanted to take that on, um, and ten years were were as a rule, relatively short as an assistant superintendent. And clearly a different time in golf, many more golf courses. Uh, the business was, was in, was in a different place than it is today. Uh, I'm curious and Carol, I'll start with you. Uh, is that your ultimate goal is to, to have your own golf, golf course, um, and serve as a, a head superintendent someday? Um, yes and no. Um, I, like that's obviously on my radar. It's it's kind of a dream, but at the same time, um, a great assistance job. There's we all know some great career assistants who are probably making more money than some of the supers out there, depending on the club. If I found the right fit, I wouldn't necessarily need to jump to the superintendent role. Um, just some of the career assistants might have just as much say in their club as a superintendent also. Um, But it's it's definitely on my radar. I would not rule it out, but it's just really about finding the right fit for me, whatever, wherever I could, Make an impact and be happy and still have a life. Yeah, also, I, I think that I think assistant superintendents now um, have assumed much broader roles and responsibilities within golf courses than say fifteen or twenty years ago. And uh, I am generalizing quite a bit, but it just exactly. from the, the 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 landscape of the business, what you see is assistant superintendents taking on more and more responsibilities. As you mentioned, their compensations uh, they're being compensated accordingly to those roles and responsibilities. The, you can develop a career, and I think some of the work you guys are doing uh, with this task group is is helping to make sure that if that is the right fit for the individual to to pursue a career as an assistant that there are resources and education available for them and and it can be a rewarding uh, a career path so I, that's one of the things i at least i have seen from my observations uh, of the business over the years exactly i've i feel like just taking the job just for the job title could be a mistake for some people it's really just about the right fit not necessarily the the title for me personally, anyways. Philip, how about you? Uh, from a personal standpoint, um, what are you looking at for next steps in your career? And then maybe from a broader uh, view of the industry, are you seeing some of the same things that Carol and I were just talking a bit about? Uh, assistance not really having to be pigeonholed into this is just a stepping stone position, uh, like might have been the case, you know, 10, 20 years ago. No doubt. I think, I think Carol, uh, hit it right on the head with, it's all about the fit. And, you know, as an assistant superintendent, it, it's all about finding the right job at the right place with the, you know, the right, working under the right superintendent, you know, for the right facility. So yes, I think there are some very good 
career super or assistant superintendent jobs out there. I know a lot of guys that do very well at them and live a very good lifestyle, very happy. Uh, for me, myself, you know, I when I interviewed for this job, I had once been a superintendent, uh, moved with my wife to Indianapolis for her job to relocate. And so it kind of forced me into to figuring out what I wanted to do. And I knew I wanted to stay in the golf industry. And the best role for me was taking this role here as an assistant superintendent. And so, you know, having that superintendent experience, it's all about, like we said, fit earlier. Here at this this facility now, I'm at a, a little bit larger of a facility than where I was a superintendent at. So I'm given a lot of responsibilities and a lot of resources. So in managing those resources, um, you know, it, it, it's a very, it's a very, I would call it a fun job for me. I, I enjoy my job very much. Um, and also, you know, with being at the track, I know we've talked about a lot of this a lot. Um, it gives me a lot of time away from the golf courses to, to work in event management or facilities management. Mm-hmm. So it, it's also opened those doors. But yes, my, you know, so maybe I wasn't ever thinking about going into something like that, but my eyes have been open to kind of a, a new career path. But yes, my, my ultimate goal is to be a superintendent. I, I joke around with my boss all the time that I want your job. And I, I think we, you know, we, we both know that I'm joking, but we both know that I'm very serious about that too. Um, you know, I, I want to prepare myself. So if you were to leave or go somewhere or take a, take a step in a different direction, I, I can be the guy. Uh, so, or if a, if a good job opened up in the area, I can be the the first one in line for it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I, it, I, I imagine it goes with any industry, and I, I can only obviously use my own career path uh, in 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 journalism. But as you continue on a career path, and 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 if you make advancements, the the things that probably first attracted you to that that job, you get to do less and less of. And I, I hear this a lot from superintendents. I share my own stories that you know I. I don't write quite as much uh, as I used to. I simply don't have time because of all the other things uh, that I that I get involved with. I mean, this podcast obviously lets me do interviews, which I like to do. I like to meet people and 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 kind of pick their brains about their their own career. But for superintendents who uh, who may have fell in love with the the early mornings and the the you know cup cutting and and do it getting a uh, mow it, getting on the back of a greens mower uh, as the sun's coming up, and next thing you know they're in budget meetings and. Uh, Exactly. Uh, dealing with members and all that fun stuff, it, it changes a lot. So I think we all have our crosses to bear, don't we, in that? Um, yeah. But but I, I wanted to ask you, speaking as assistant superintendents in Carroll, I'll, I'll, I'll begin with you here. Uh, biggest challenges that you that you are facing, that you see others in your position uh, uh, facing right now, um, hurdles that might be in your way, and, and maybe some opportunities as well that you're seeing? Um, I would say the biggest challenge is still kind of maybe the old school attitude that the assistant should be there a million hours um, for little pay usually, Um, not necessarily the pay. I think people, especially younger people, we want to have a little bit more of a life. Um, I'm lucky enough to be at a facility where we generally leave on time. Um, And I think with the advancements and irrigation and stuff like that, we don't have to to be necessarily right. at the golf course. Um, so it's just 
getting people's mind past that. Like I know, like they just because they had to work that many hours doesn't necessarily mean we do. So that I guess is one of the biggest challenges I see out there. And it's talked about like any assistant I know. Um, you just see these ads just asking for everything for nothing. Um, So I think that's a big challenge just in general in the industry. It is changing. We've been talking about it today. Um, I think people are finally getting the message that we would rather, I think a lot of people, a little less pay even to have a little bit more of a life. Right. I do feel like we're getting there, and especially because it's it's younger people now kind of taking those superintendent roles, and they've maybe been the assistant for 15 or even more years, and they get it. They know, like, like that they want to have a life, too. So it's it's getting there. Uh, Philip, I'll, I'll ask you the same question, and, and I don't know if it, it differs geographically or not. Um, it, U.S. versus Canada, I think this, these these challenges are probably pretty universal throughout the the North American golf industry. But uh, from from your perch uh, there by the speedway, what's the uh, what are the biggest challenges facing folks that are that are in your role right now? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges I see is the way the golf industry has settled after the recession. Um, we're, I think we're seeing a lot of the mid-level golf courses disappear. I don't have numbers and statistics to back it up, but it seems, you know, if, let's be honest, there's low-end, medium-end, and high-end golf facilities. And I think if we look back on history, we'll see that most of the low-ends, they don't have the budget or the resources to acquire, you know, People who have the experience, turf management, whether it's a degree or, or, or the long-term experience to be superintendent. Um, so that forced a lot of superintendents to stay at these mid-level and high-end golf courses. And I think we've seen a lot of these mid-level golf courses kind of fall down through the through the recession. And so it it's kind of everybody with the turf degree. I you know they keep telling us in the assistant role, hey. Your time's coming. Your time's coming. Guys are going to be retiring. Guys are going to be retiring. But it seems like there's so many guys fighting for these jobs that pay us to have enough of you know what we're looking for to have a family and keep everybody happy um, and be rewarded for the work we put into it. So it, it still remains very difficult to to find these jobs. These kind of mid level jobs seem to be disappearing. You know, maybe 20 years ago somebody would have settled on going to XYZ. I don't want to say settled, but I did um, maybe going to XYZ country club because they knew they could, they could live a good life there, you know, be happy with their family or whatnot. Uh, now maybe that job's no longer there. So they got to keep going for the higher end, higher end country club. And it forces more and more guys looking at the same jobs. Uh I, pre- I appreciate that, Philip. I think I think that's a great perspective on things. I, just a couple more questions, and I'll let you guys uh, uh, get back to actually serving our serving the association and the uh, and the task group. But uh, Carol, I wanted to I wanted to ask you, um, and we we talked a little bit about this with being at the, at the Ladies uh, Golf Club of Toronto. Um, 
you are a female in a largely male-dominated um, profession, as, as we discussed. There are increased opportunities. There is increased networking and camaraderie among females who are working in this business. But from your personal experience, have you? Uh, what's your experience been like? Do you feel like you've had to work harder, uh, work differently uh, to, to be <laughs> to be accepted? To this? Is, is this has there been more roadblocks than maybe some might face? I'm, I'm kind of just kind of curious about about how your you have viewed your pathway into golf course management. I like that work differently. Maybe yeah. that's kind of the the answer. Um maybe more on the the bottom end of things like when I was first just in the industry, um depending on the place, like I I was lucky the first place I ever worked was very open to women being on any piece of equipment, but I've definitely been places where they Kind of like if a, a female applies, they're generally put in the gardens. Um, that sense, like, I don't think they're doing it on purpose. I don't think they know. But how are we going to attract women to the industry if every time a resume comes in, we kind of throw them in the gardens or give them the, the girl's job? Um, so I'd say more, yeah, um, just on that level. Um, as I've worked my way up, it's gotten a little better. Um, I do feel like there's obviously, like, Things that people don't realize they expect from a, whim, a woman, maybe like you might be promoting your male assistant to move on, but you might expect your female assistant to be loyal because that's a women are thought to be loyal or right. nurturing. Um, so little things like that, um, I definitely hear buzzing in the industry about stuff like that from the other women, but... I think, yeah, we're definitely uh, getting there and getting our faces out there and kind of proving ourselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, and just, I mean, just uh, providing providing perspective and, and input at important events like we talked earlier at GIS. Uh, I have noticed on social media in the uh, in the golf course management Twitter world, yes. um, very active and, and really just... Uh, I view them. I just have viewed the professionalism and and the input and the insight they've brought to some of those conversations and a lot of the agronomic stuff. I sit on the sidelines because God knows you want my agronomic, yeah, right. my non-educated agronomic uh, input in some of these discussions. But it certainly interests me. And um, again, noting some of the some of the increased. Uh, participation of females in the Canadian golf uh, uh, market and their participation in, in all of these different conversations. It doesn't have to be agronomic. It, yeah. Staff management or you know, personnel or you talk about uh, you know time away from the course, make it that work-life balance. And um, it, it's been a great step for, for the industry. It certainly was uh, awesome to see it at, at GIS um, um, how that's become a focus of that event. And were you able to be? Were you able to come to San Diego for that? Um, actually, I was in school for a month. Okay. Um, so I went back to university um, to further my education. Well, good. You got, yeah, so, priorities. Yep, yeah. Priorities. Um, but yeah, uh, I was a little jealous. But <laughs> yeah. Well, a great event. I'm sure we'll, you'll have m- m- many more opportunities. So I want to wrap things up, guys, um, um, and just kind of let you comment a little bit about what the experience today of serving uh, on a task group. The Assistant Superintendent Task Group and some of the things that they are uh, uh, dealing with. Philip, I'll, I'll, I'll kick that off with you. Um, uh, you have been uh, spending all day listening to a conference call, which I <laughs> applaud you for. That is a that's quite uh, quite the dedication to to sit there all day. And but uh, what are what are some of the key issues that you guys have been dealing with today? And maybe what was your maybe your biggest takeaway from your experience on this task group? 
Yeah, some of the the key issues that we discussed today had to do with the assistant superintendent um, talks at the golf industry show. You know, we also talked about ways to make the golf industry show better. Some other major focus points where we spent a lot of time was talking about the certificate series for assistant superintendents and how do we go about making that better, uh, whether it's, it's marketing, testing, getting the, uh, the last two te- or the last two certificates rolled out. So the, it was a very informal meeting for me. I, I, I learned a lot, things that I can take back and, you know, I, I've been addressed by other assistants. Hey, you're, you're active in GCSAA. You know, what's up with this or what's up with that? And, and I, I can also help voice their, their opinion. So. Um, and then from there, we, we talked a lot about the the programs that GCSAA is running as far as the the um, BMPs, best management practices, the first screen, uh, the website, the five minute you know tutorial or five minute fixes, the tutorial videos that they're putting up, and you know how to make those better when we're gearing them towards assistants and what what do assistants need in the industry? So I, I thought it was a very productive day for everybody. That's great, Carol. Uh, biggest takeaway from uh, from being here uh, today for these meetings? Oh, um, I guess the biggest thing is, um, yeah, um, I didn't really know all the benefits of the membership, so um, just paying a little bit more attention to that, and then also just getting the word out to other people who might not know, because if I, I didn't know, they definitely won't know, so I'm taking that away. Yeah, and and for you, you I'm assuming this is your first visit to uh, to lovely Lawrence, Kansas. Yes, I've never been in this general area ever. <laughs> that, that's great. Uh, did you enjoy the opportunity? I mean, you, you and, and Philip, unfortunately, with um, not being able to hear some of that networking that you get to with the other assistants. But how valuable was was that for you to get a chance to actually be in the headquarters and kind of meet with other assistants from around uh, around North America? Such a great experience. So it's it's been fun. It's short and sweet, but uh, fun. And when else would I ever get a chance to come to Lawrence? So yeah. uh, it definitely had to take the opportunity to come here. Well, Philip, we'll have to uh, Photoshop you in on the photo of everyone out in front of the old Tom statue here at uh, uh, at headquarters. Yes, so. you are more than welcome. And uh, you know, luckily, I was able to travel out last year for the uh, for the same committee, and then awesome. also being a part of the uh, the Excel program that's has right. uh, that's provided right. me uh, plenty of trips to to Lawrence. So. Well, you, um, you're missing a May day when it's like 40 degrees and it's been raining for two weeks straight here. And uh, so it's... Makes me feel at home. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it does. Well, listen, I have kept you both way too long and they're going to yell at me, Carol, when I when we get you back into the meeting room upstairs. And Philip, you can just turn the mute off, I guess, and participate <laughs> in the call. But I want to thank you both, Carol uh, Turner, Philip Fisher. Thank you both for taking the time to join us. Great conversation. Um, appreciate your feedback and hope to talk to you again real soon. Thanks, Carol. Thank you. Philip, thank you. Enjoy the race. I guess you have a race weekend this weekend, huh? Yes, we do. We do. So thank you, Scott. All right. Well, enjoy it, and thank you both. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Take care. Well, my thanks once again to Carol Turner and Philip Fisher for taking some time to talk about what it means to be an assistant superintendent in today's golf market and some of the challenges and opportunities facing those folks. Appreciate their uh, passion for the business and their willingness to give back and serve on the GCSAA assistant superintendent task group at this stage in their careers. And I'm sure we're going to be hearing much more from those two as time goes on. 
Next up is our partner profile conversation with Dr. Patrick Burgess from Bayer Environmental Science. So a perfect time, of course, to bring you a word from the good folks at Bayer, our presenting partners in this podcast. During my chat with Patrick and uh, uh, very similarly, an earlier conversation that I had with Bayer's Paul Giordano and Shenzi Zhang on episode seven of the GCSA podcast, we dig a little bit into the science behind the extraordinary results that superintendents are getting with Bayer's line of stress guard fungicides. And as a company, you know Bayer is dedicated to helping its customers thrive through a combination of technical expertise and innovative solutions that come together to help superintendents maximize turf quality and make their jobs easier. And uh, really, everyone's looking for a little of that. If you want to learn more about the company and about how stress guard fungicides redefine ordinary, head over to environmentalscience.bear.us slash stress guard. That is environmentalscience.bear.us slash stress guard. Our thanks as always to everyone at Bear for their support of this podcast. So with that, let's take you into my conversation with Dr. Patrick Burgess, field development scientist with Bear. Hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome back. And um, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you have probably heard mention of our uh, proud partnership with Bayer Environmental Science. Uh, they're helping us with production of this podcast. Uh, and, and through their support, uh, we have uh, been able to kind of tap into some of uh, the, the technical expertise that is available uh, through Bayer Environmental Science and, and talk to some of the folks who are out in the field. Uh, interacting with superintendents, uh, solving problems that they're encountering, and, and then kind of bringing that knowledge back uh, into the laboratory to develop solutions uh, to help superintendents do their jobs better. And we have another one of those great discussions ahead of us today as we are joined by uh, Patrick Burgess, PhD, is a field development scientist for Bayer. He joined the company in November of 2016, and he is the winner uh, of the 2018 Musser International Turfgrass Foundation Award of Excellence. We will talk a little bit about that award, but Patrick, how are you today? I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you, and uh, I won't go too deep into the weeds, but uh, Patrick, uh, in addition to the winner of the Musser Award, is a very, very patient man and has endured a few uh, uh, technical uh, hiccups that we've had with this podcast, but we are fully greenlit here, and uh, uh, Patrick, I, I will start and just kind of let you maybe tell your story uh, of, how, of what led you to a career uh, in golf course management. What first attracted you to agronomy, uh, turfgrass science, things of that nature, and and how did you get to your position with Bear? Yeah, yeah, definitely, Scott. So, uh, so my my path actually uh, began in the uh, in the ornamental and ag markets, where the crop market is kind of a blend of the two. And uh, I spent the better part of a decade uh, working at a facility called Secor Farms, uh, located in Northeast New Jersey, uh, in Mawa, New Jersey, and and this is really. I mean, this is essentially where I grew up and uh, where I developed uh, a really deep interest and essentially my foundational skills, uh, not only in plant management, uh, but uh, also in, in customer engagement uh, in and around that market. And um, I worked my way through community college, uh, not not really knowing uh, what the future held at that time, but uh you know, I was uh, I was lucky enough to still be playing a fair amount of golf uh, at the time, which is a little bit different than nowadays. But uh, I, uh, from that, I, I enrolled in the plant biology program at Rutgers and uh, got my bachelor's in uh, horticulture and turf science. 
and uh, really felt that I had a lot more one to learn, of course, myself. But then from that, uh, to give back to this industry, uh, which I was really just scratching the surface on at the time uh, in terms of learning about. So I, uh, I applied to a plant biology grad program at, at Rutgers and uh, did, my, uh, did my doctorate under uh, Dr. Bingru Wong. Uh, they're in the plant biology department, specializing in turf grass stress physiology and uh, environmental interactions. And um, how I got to where I'm at right now, you know, during my during my time in grad school, I uh, I was a teaching assistant. I was a lab manager of a fairly large lab, and uh, I also had the pleasure of teaching uh, several courses in the uh, the Rutgers two year professional turf management program. Um, Alongside all that, you know, I had a lot of interaction with uh, with folks in private industry, whether it be Bayer or a number of other uh, manufacturers and technology manufacturers. And uh, when this position uh, became available, you know, I had that that diverse skill set and that that sound foundation, if you will, to uh, to be the top candidate for this role. And uh, the rest is history. I'm loving every minute of it. Well, that's great. And and, and along your way and along the path. Uh uh, to to this current position, uh, as I mentioned, you were the winner of the 2018 uh, Musser Award of Excellence. And for the uninitiated, uh, tell us about the award, um, what it means, how you're selected, and, and really what it meant to you uh, and, and to your career to, to win what is really a prestigious honor uh, in the turf grass uh, community. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it really is the the most prestigious award uh, um, for for students studying turfgrass science, and I am I'm I'm incredibly honored. I was honored then. I'll be honored for the rest of my life to be the 2018 winner. But um, to give to give our listeners a little background, Scott. So, um, Professor Bert Musser uh, of Penn State University was was really one of the founding pioneers of turf science many years ago. Um, we're talking, you know, 80 plus years ago and, uh, and was really instrumental in, uh, not only establishing the amazing teaching program that's at Penn state right now, um, but essentially helping and contributing to setting the foundation, um, for, for turf management as a science itself. And, uh, after he passed, um, one of the ways that uh, folks wanted to continue his legacy and continue his amazing impact was by setting up a foundation uh, in his name to continue to advance the turf industry uh, by ways of recognizing exceptional students uh, across uh, essentially any discipline uh, within turf management and the associated research uh, fields. Um, the second part of your question there, what, what it really means to me to win, I mean, it's it's uh it's difficult to to put into words that that adequately convey um how how honored I am as I already mentioned but um wh- what I can say is that by by me w- winning this award in 2018 you know it's it, it continues to provide such a high level of recognition across this amazing industry and uh and it really elevated my own stature uh I feel within the industry in, in a way that uh, my former students, uh, current and past colleagues, and, and, and customers, too, of course. You know, and most importantly, the customers feel that they can engage me, engage my colleagues, engage the folks that I work closely with and that I trust to, uh, to help solve turf problems and, uh, or maybe their pain points. 
and uh, and help make a difference in their day-to-day lives. You have a couple of, uh, I know, co-workers at Bear, uh, Rob Golombowski, Zach Riker, who also are past winners uh, of that award. And uh, that, that speaks uh, speaks volumes to the, the kind of talent, the kind of uh, uh, industry knowledge that the company is bringing in. So, you know, kudos to you and your co-workers, uh, of course, all of both great guys. Um, so we know your job title. Uh, I, I regurgitated that at the top field development scientist. But uh, when when the next door neighbor comes over and says, so what do you really do, Pat, for <laughs> Bayer? Uh, what's, what's what's your elevator speech? What are what are you telling them about uh, uh, the actual work that you are doing uh, for Bayer on behalf of the golf industry? Yeah, I, I get asked that question quite a bit um, because there's obviously a lot of folks who are not uh, necessarily uh, involved in our industry. Um, so, what, and more or less, Scott, how I answer that question is, you know, within my current role at Bayer, um, I get the opportunity to engage with cooperators both in academia or private consultants, and then uh, with customers directly in the field or in a number of different settings, whether uh, they be symposia or, or conferences or, or anything like that, um, to, to really identify what the unmet market needs are across, uh, across the turf ornamental or pest management um, uh, markets and, uh, and really delve into what their pain points are and uh, what really uh, makes them tick, uh, if you will, um, and really use that as the basis to, to innovate, right? To, to create innovation, to solve these issues for the customers across these different markets. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a position which is, which is very diverse, which I enjoy, you know, no two days are the same. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm out in the field a lot and I get to engage with the customers and it's, uh, it's really rewarding to be helping people, uh, on on a number of different levels and in, in different aspects of their day to day lives and, and help them achieve their their long term goals and uh, and just live better lives. I, I think that's that's super important that that the face to face interaction with 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 customers with superintendents and uh, and letting that kind of be a, a guidepost to how. Uh, the company as a whole goes about sol- solving those problems. I know that you have been in the field uh, the last couple of days uh, doing some of that interacting with superintendents. Um, you're, you're focused largely in the, the Northeast. You're based in New Jersey. Is that, that, that's your general focus, correct? Yes, yes. So I am, uh, I'm field-based out of Northwest, Northwest New Jersey, and uh, I, uh, I help drive the innovation from, from Maryland, Delaware, all the way up uh, to, uh, to Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and uh, Pennsylvania, New York, and, and such. Well, uh, what, from your interactions just the last two days, and maybe from just, I guess, throughout the, the year so far, what, what are you hearing from superintendents about the biggest challenges Mother Nature has uh, thrown curveballs to, uh, to turf managers in all parts of the country? Uh, and that's probably not unique to this year, but uh, definitely spotlighted right now. What kind of things are you hearing from superintendents in terms of the issues they're facing and the, uh, the solutions they are seeking? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Mother Nature never fails to throw curveballs, Scott. You know, she that's what she likes to do, right? And uh, here in the Northeast, um, up until a few days ago, actually, it is, it's just been extremely cold and extremely wet. 
Um, and, uh, and actually pretty similar comparatively to, uh, to the 2018, start of the 2018 season, um, which, uh, which really means that, uh, disease especially, and, uh, most pests are, are not, are not yet excessive. You know, the, the, the pressure really isn't there quite yet. Um, but, uh, but that's changing, you know, it's changing fast, especially the past couple of days, like what I said in. And the common theme that I continue to hear when I'm out there engaging with the customers um, uh, across this market is, uh, you know, they're first off, they're they're eager for the weather to improve, right? We all are, and um, and it is changing uh, really quickly. Um, but you know, they all recognize uh, that disease in insects uh, are primed, right? They are primed. They're ready to go. And um, as the weather uh, begins to warm now, and it's warming quite quickly, especially over the past couple of days, uh, this is when things can start to blow up, if you will, right? This is when, when uh, disease can really come on fast and certain insect pests uh, this time of year can really start wreaking havoc. And, uh, and that's where, that's where uh, myself and my colleagues and my, my area sales folks, my technical support team around me, that's where that's where we come in to really support the customers' goals and uh, provide them with the knowledge, the knowledge and the skills that they need uh, to to make sound decisions um, uh, across the course. And uh, and yeah, and like I said, things are changing fast. Yeah, they 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 always do. They're uh, here in the Midwest. We are have been inundated with rain over the last uh, three or four weeks. So that will bring uh, pressures of their of its own to turf managers. Uh, turf managers here. Uh, I, I'm curious when you are in the field. Uh, I would. My presumption is that most of the interactions you're having, you're you're looking to solve existing problems right now do you consciously then have conversations about what what can we provide you now to solve the problems you're facing now uh and then have a separate conversation about so long term what are what what sorts of things do you need help with where you don't currently have solutions are, are those conscious decisions to to separate those conversations or are, there, are you just kind of picking up intel that then you can take back and say, hey, this might be an area where we need to look at uh, some, some research, uh, some development, things of that nature? Well, well, everything that you just said there, Scott, really, really boils down to, uh, to customer engagement and, and customer interaction and, and just being present uh, to, to walk the course with them and um, to to gain the insight on uh, on on what is is plaguing them or bothering them uh, without necessarily asking them that straight up. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's really you know this current role really allows me to to do that in a variety of number a variety of ways um, in, in a way that they feel comfortable with telling me the things that they need and telling my colleagues the things that they need. And uh, uh, of course, letting me know where they where they would like to see the future of, of golf turf management go. Um, and I already mentioned this a few times. You know, I, I get the pleasure to be out there in the field, engaging with the customer. Uh, but right next to me are my are my area sales managers, uh, my technical support scientists, my product managers, so on and so forth. So so when you're working with Bear, I mean, you're working with with really who I feel the, the, the best team in the industry really is. I think that we've assembled 
the the really the the top notch team um, to be able to identify uh, these particular insights and uh, and uh, connect the dots for the customers and really come up with solutions to improve uh, you know how they operate on a day to day basis. Yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of experience, uh, a lot of. Uh, uh great industry knowledge that Bear is able to bring to the table with the team that they have assembled. And I, and I want to pivot uh, now to talk a little bit about the stress, about stress guard, stress guard mm-hmm. technology. Uh, I know that that particular technology probably uh, was born of a lot of the conversations that you were just describing uh, many, many years ago, because obviously things like uh, the development of stress guard uh, take, take quite a bit of time. Uh, but uh, much like you have to explain to your neighbors what your job is uh, for, for superintendents, uh, turf managers, and maybe listeners who aren't uh, super familiar with StressGuard, uh, what does it do and what is StressGuard technology? Yeah, so so again, I am a plant physiologist by training. I've been working with with the StressGuard family of products for for a long time, but but the history goes back long before I ever got to uh Got to work with it, and and when I'm talking to folks who aren't familiar with with Stress Guard, um, how I explain it is is Stress Guard is is this family of products. It's a product line that are first and foremost highly efficacious fungicides that are that are formulated by by uh, by some of the best formulation chemists in the world, and and folks who who I have the pleasure of working aside to to produce a product that goes far beyond disease control and uh, are, are, are capable of mitigating essentially the, you know, the full scope of biotics, so living and abiotics, so, so non-living stresses on the course. And um, they're, they're able to deliver uh, a stronger, healthier, uh, far more consistent playing surface for the golfer, which, which drives uh, uh, you know, golfer satisfaction on the course and on the flip side less need for other inputs uh, such as water and fertility which can get very expensive in different settings uh, on the part of the superintendent so so a driving satisfaction on that end as well well you you there's been a lot of opportunity to kind of see how it works in a real world, see how it works in research uh, settings, field research settings. What kind of results are are you seeing, both in in terms of formal research uh, into into stress guard and how it works, and also just from uh, uh, just customer feedback on, on the experiences they're having in the real world. So, um, I mean, let's let's think about the impact of, of stress guard first, Scott. So. Stress guard, simply put, I mean, the impact is just is just far reaching, right? And it's it's really quite traumatic for the superintendents who, who have have adopted this this amazing product line, and by by doing so, they're they're able to uh, have predictability uh, in the in their turf health, repeatability, which is huge. They know what they're going to get. Uh, they know how it's going to happen. And, and versatility too. So we're talking about six, six different products, five different frac codes, uh, each of which are are uh, able to to really drive satisfaction, and uh, and helps us to build these long lasting relationships uh, with our customers, right? And um, I guess in terms of in, in terms of results, <laughs> as I as I've been on with Bear now for a few years, you know, it. I think there are a few results, if any, that we haven't 
demonstrated time and time again to the customer um, over the span of 25 plus years of research um, in and around the stress guard uh, technology um, and really optimization of, of these products too. So it's, it's not something that's by any means done. You know, we continue to innovate. We continue to optimize these formulations based upon the customer insight, based upon what the customer needs. And the result uh, is 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 a product line uh, that that no other that no other uh, folks out there can can even come close to um, across the industry. And something that we're very proud of. Uh, my my suspicion, I think I might know the answer to this question, and maybe our reader or our listeners do uh, as well. But in terms of uh, obviously greens, fairways, teas might uh, deal differently with the same sorts of stresses. Heat might. It might impact greens differently than it impacts fairways based on height of cut and things of that nature. Uh, but what different do you see the stress guard impacting those stresses differently based on the part of the golf course uh, that we're talking about? Greens, largely say greens versus fairways. Yeah, of course, of course, Scott. Great question. Um, and, and you're right. So in, in terms of the actual antagonist uh, stressor itself, you know, greens and fairways are exposed uh, to the same antagonist, uh, you know, by definition, whether it be heat or drought um, or shade or, or certain level of traffic, you know, the list goes on. Uh, but but just the fact that they're managed so incredibly differently and and really have such different expectations, both on the part of uh, uh, the golfer as well as the turf manager, uh, means that that each uh, each site, greens or fairways, uh, pose pose very very different challenges for the superintendent, um, uh, and 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 that's where stress guard really can uh, can really help them do their job a lot easier. So. So, for example, okay, I'll go into each of these separately. For example, on greens, okay, all the listeners know out there that that greens are held to the highest standards by far, uh, uh, playability, quality, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, probably dozens and dozens of factors uh, across all the sites on the golf course and practices that that create those conditions, such as uh, extremely low height of cut. Repeated rolling events, uh, bird cutting, um, and on top of that, uh, running things hard and fast. Right, deficit irrigation, especially during uh, the summer months, to to get to get really high uh, uh, ball roll speeds. Um, it, all of this rolled together and even separately too have major implications on on different physiological processes, whether it be uh, you know carbon metabolism. Uh, or, or any number of uh, factors contributing to uh, to to make uh, what makes the plant grow, right? Cellular growth yeah. and maintenance, and um, you know, stress guard is 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 able to to really provide the tools, if you will, you know, without going into uh, without getting to uh, a sciency on you, but uh, the, the the tools to do more with less, right, and allow the plant to sustain that growth. And therefore sustain that performance on a green, when uh, when otherwise they would they would succumb to the to the stress without stress guard uh, uh, worked into the program, and uh, so so that's greens. Um, we we pivot, if you will, to to fairways now. Now, 
uh, fairways, largest amount of managed in-play acreage on the golf course. No surprise there. And uh, the the inherent fact that they're mowed at a higher height of cut uh, it tends to allow them to better withstand certain abiotic stresses, or, or perhaps uh, they're they're not um, as bothersome to the turf management or, uh, or or the golfer, if you will. And um, because of so much acreage, they, they they tend to be treated with products. Uh, or, or water, fertility, whatever, on, on a less frequent basis in greens. And that, that huge amount of acreage means that each management event on the part of the superintendent is a, is a, is a, you know, a really significant cost. All right? You're talking about a lot of area to cover. And if it's not timed correctly for any number of reasons, um, you, you're not getting the biggest bang for your buck or you can miss a mark depending upon uh, what the goal is on the part of the superintendent. So, so with the stress guard portfolio, uh, you know, the, the superintendent is able to not only control these diseases at a very high level, uh, but also strengthen the fairways in, in a way that, you know, over, over a fairly short amount of time, actually, they are able to, again, do more with less. They require less water, less fertility, uh, less additional plant health products, um, all while maintaining that consistent playing surface and, and a really extremely high level of aesthetic appeal. Well, you, you mentioned a, a key word that I know many, many of our listeners have heard from their, uh, from their owners, from their greens chairman, uh, more, do more with less. And, uh, it certainly, uh, from from my perch, certainly seems like stress guard is is, is a way uh, for them to do that in the management of greens, fairways, uh, and other features on the golf course. And Patrick, I certainly appreciate your time today. Uh, I know you're just coming off the road, so I'm sure the last thing you wanted to do was uh, sit down and, and knock out a podcast interview. But I but I do really appreciate it. And, and and I'll leave you with just one question, and I'll le- let you have the last word with our listeners. And if you had one thing to uh, to leave them with, as it as it uh, as it pertains to uh, to stress guard and one lesson about that uh, technology, what would that be? Yeah, well, again, Scott, you know, I'm I'm really thrilled to do the podcast again. Thank you. And 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 in closing, this, you know, I really want our listeners uh, who are who are some of the most amazing and dedicated uh, folks I've ever interacted with and and I enjoy working with on a daily basis. Um, I want them to take away from this podcast. Uh, a sound, uh, a sound knowledge that stress guard uh, is able to provide them this extremely high level of disease control with uh, incredible, uh, substantially added plant health benefits that will that will help solve their problems, right, or their pain points, uh, which they experience on their own course on a, on a daily basis and. Uh, you know, I, I referenced uh, the amazing team that I have around me a number of uh, times during this, and they should reach out to a local area sales manager or any any folks that they know in Bayer, and let's just let's just get this trust guard conversation going because uh, they're they're really going to love it, and it's going to do amazing things for them. Well, Patrick, great words to end end with. Uh, thank you again for your time. Much much appreciated. Look forward to connecting you again uh, uh, down the road, and uh, and thanks for joining us today, Pat. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too, Scott. Thank you so much for having me.
Well, that wraps it up. Episode 9 of the GCSAA podcast is in the books. I want to thank my guests on this episode, Assistant Superintendents Carol Turner and Philip Fisher, as well as Dr. Pat Burgess from Bear Environmental Science. Also, a big shout-out to the producer of this podcast, Mr. Evan Bissell, and all of our friends over at Bear who support this podcast as our presenting partner. We will be back next month with more on the GCSA podcast. But until then, on behalf of everyone here at GCSA headquarters in lovely and uh, saturated Lawrence, Kansas, the nine members of GCSAA's National Board of Directors, and the more than 18,000 members of GCSAA worldwide, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon on another episode of the GCSA podcast. Take care, everybody. <laughs>